Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. The problem of waste bedevils us, piles up in landfill, leaches into our waterways, pollutes our oceans. New Zealand has dropped 3 million tonnes of waste into landfills every year, of which 8% is plastic. That's around 734 kilograms per person. It's a lot. Our recycling efforts are mediocre. China went from our biggest receiver of recycling to nothing overall overnight in 2018 and whole suburbs seem to be confused about what recycling actually means and have been dropped from collection but as they say where there's muck there's brass well they say where there's muck there's brass today i'm talking to two entrepreneurs using technology to address waste problems at source oliver hunt is co-founder of medsalve which cleans and refurbishes one-use hospital equipment and Toby Skelton, who is the co-founder of Mutu, an online exchange for sharing and hiring household gear. Both are recent startups, both deploy tech to solve seemingly impossible problems, and both share a vision for a world with less toxic crap in the ground. So, Toby and Oliver, thank you for joining me on this climate business. Thanks, Vincent. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Great. Good to be here. Um, well, Oliver, maybe I could start with you. You have chosen what seems to me the hardest, most toxic and dangerous field for recycling. <laughs> no problem. Um, uh, what um, what motivated you? Oh, actually, we'll come back to the motivation, but um, what, what exactly would you collect and not collect in the hospital system? Uh, so we do a whole bunch of different devices across, well, all of the surgical hospitals um, in New Zealand, I suppose. We don't we don't yet work with all of them, but we're working with uh, most of the big ones and some of the smallest as well. Um, the products, uh, there's, there's a huge range of them. I mean, I could go into specifics, but uh, I think the, the key ones, uh, we started with non-invasive, but now we're looking at a whole bunch of other ones. Give us some examples. I'm, I'm imagining needles, scalpels, things full of diseases and blood. Yeah, so we don't do needles, scalpels, syringes or anything like that. Uh, those products uh, make more sense to recycle, so break down and, and take them back to their material components. But we do a whole bunch of products like uh, compression sleeves for uh, D-vein thrombosis, and so they're used at a pretty high frequency across New Zealand, um, and then a whole bunch of other devices which are sort of similar to that. Um, we have some interesting ones which are perfectly embody what um, forced obsolescences, and so we've deliberately tackled those to sh show that they don't need to be something that has to go to landfill. Um, mm -hmm. And some of them are just as simple as a, a particular strap with some fittings that make it suitable for a particular surgery. Um, yeah, but I mean the the range of potential devices that can be reprocessed or remanufactured, if you like, um, is tremendous in the sort of thousands of devices. So I could go on all day about about that. <laughs> But typically what happens with these things is they're one use only, right? They're designed to be one use and then thrown away. Yeah, so that's not technically true, actually. So what these things are designed to do is um, they're all medical devices. They're designed to solve a problem for a patient. Um, they're not necessarily designed to be single use, but they're not validated for reuse. And there's an important distinction there. 
Um, because if you're making a single use device, you do not need to go through as um, lengthy or costly uh, validation exercises as if you are making a reusable device that a hospital can then clean and reuse. So there's a financial incentive to, um, on the pure device side, design side, to make a single use device. Uh, and then obviously, if you sell 10 devices, you make more money than if you sell one device and the hospital cleans it nine mm-hmm. times. But um, yeah, often the devices we're looking at, we're actually stepping in and doing that validation and offering that um, remanufacturing service that the hospital isn't able to provide. But yeah. Okay. So um, just give us a sense of the scale of the problem. You know, how much waste is created? Uh, it's pretty ginormous, I suppose. Um, there's a really interesting video that we recently shared on, um, uh, LinkedIn, which was the amount of waste created in a single surgery over in the Netherlands. Um, and that was arranged around the person who had the surgery on, um, in a basketball court. And it, it took up more or less half of the basketball court when all laid flat. And that's for a relatively common procedure, uh, so that, that gives some idea. Uh, we collect uh, bags upon bags or boxes on boxes of, of devices on a weekly basis from all over the country. Um, and we know that the largest hospitals in the country are producing of the order of 3,000 tonnes of waste to landfill for the biggest ones um, annually. So it's big. It's hard to quantify. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's huge waste. Mm. And what do you do with it? Explain the process. You've got an excellent diagram on your website and it does look comprehensive. So maybe just take us through that process of what you can do with the stuff which would otherwise be destined for a hole in the ground. Uh, yeah, so what we do is we re- obviously we collect the device from the hospital, we then transport it in a way um, that causes the least possible environmental damage, which means we use reusable collection containers uh, to our facility. We then assess it to see if it can be reprocessed. Uh, If it can, then we uh, mark each device individually uh, uniquely so that we can track it. Um, And then we remanufacture it. So that's a bunch of further testing to check that it's up to spec. Uh, It does exactly what the original devices do. Uh, And then then obviously cleaning Mm -hmm. is part of that as well. And then finally, we do a final inspection, package it, make that available back to the hospital for them to order, and then they'll order it and we'll return it. Now, one of the cool things about the way we do the collection is that we actually collect the devices in a carton that is then used to send the same devices back once it's been obviously deep cleaned. Um, And that means we don't have to use cardboard in our process, which is an advantage for us. Um, It's an advantage Mm. because... Cardboard's expensive, both uh, financially and environmentally, and you know not many people realise that cardboard is not uh, recycled as often as possible. And when it is, it's incredibly carbon emission intensive. Um, so that's kind of a wee bit of a uh, talk through our, our general process. Um, we also assess and the deep cleaning that you do. Pre- presumably, also has some quite. Uh, I'm imagining some pretty toxic chemicals involved in in the cleaning. Is the actual cleaning itself a clean process? Yeah, so the, we don't actually use that much in the way of chemicals. Um, cleaning is the, probably the most straightforward part about what we do. Uh, we, we're assessing every individual device every time it gets remanufactured uh, to see check that it's performing up to specifications, so functional testing, if, if you like, using machinery and equipment that we've devi- designed, developed, and um, 
and you know we're on to some of them we're on to iteration two or three of the for speed and for you know accuracy and that sort of thing mm. um the cleaning itself uses very little in the way of chemicals and we've been quite careful to avoid uh harmful pollutants so nothing too complicated from the chemical point of view um but the yeah there's a few few little little tricks we have in there the other uh-huh. thing that we yeah. uh, have is because we're uniquely marking every single device that we process, uh, we or, or we manufacture, if you like, we we're able to get a really good feel for how long certain types and brands of devices last. So, a product that was once considered single use, we're now able to provide feedback to hospitals to say, if you go with this brand of product, we expect that you'll get this many average number of uses given your situation, um, which is, you know, putting a different lens over a product that never, never existed, but because we've got the underlying system to secure that data and present it in a way that's useful, um, we can help hospital make a decision to reduce their impact even further. That's interesting. So they're going to put that back into their procurement decision making, which ultimately would feed back to the manufacturer. Well, sometimes we feed that back directly to the manufacturer and some manufacturers have sort of been a bit ahead of the curve and actually engaged with us to say, well, look, we see what you guys are doing. We like it. Um, How can we get involved and how can we help? Um, And we can say, well, you guys have got this design decision in your product and it's preventing it the product from being remanufactured. So if you can change that, then that's going to make you your offering to the hospital better. Um, and the hospitals, you know, hospitals also buy into that as well. Hmm. That's true circularity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to talk about circularity later, but um, let's go to Toby. Toby, congratulations on kicking off Mutu. You you look like you've had an absolute whirlwind, whirlwind of a ride since launch, which was when, in September? Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, that's probably a, a pretty accurate way of describing it. I mean, it's been a, a pretty incredible journey, I guess, to probably to give you a bit of just a quick context of kind of how we came about and sort of where we're at. I mean, we we did, we, we launched the, the platform in September, but the idea itself sort of stemmed from my OE. So like most Kiwis packed up at university, um, my partner and I set off around the world um, and we sort of found getting access to to outdoor gear, whether it was a tent or a bike or a paddleboard, was quite a sort of um, arduous process. You know, lots of paperwork, having to give away our passport, which is never great when you're travelling. Um, and when you're in a foreign city, it's, it's pretty hard to know where to go, the good spot. So we used a, another platform um, called Couchsurfer, which pretty much the name sums it up. Stay with locals on their couches. Um, and we found that these people just had houses filled with stuff. They had the bikes, tents, kayaks, yeah. you name it, all that gear. Um ultimately collecting dust so that was yeah pretty much from there um the light bulb moment off kiwi garages so i established a team in november 2019 um, and we got sort of working on on building a solution to i guess unlock the value of of assets that are ultimately just laying idle in in kiwi garages and in kiwi homes and um it's been incredible since september we um we're now sort of rolled out across the country just been going city by city um had awesome user growth um sort of sitting around twelve thousand users with transactions and listings tripling sort of month on month um yeah it's just it's been truly incredible i guess seeing the the uptake and the excitement around i guess the the idea of something that's been pretty much around forever is just sharing um i can understand that med cell 
is tackling a difficult problem in a difficult space and so has taken a while to kind of emerge. But this seems like a really logical, and I, I don't want to diminish your effort, so, you know, you can throw me out, but it does seem like like this is so simple, it's so obvious. Why has it not happened before? Yeah, and I think um, that is actually something that gets said to me pretty much every time I sort of, you know, introduce someone to the idea. They always say either, oh, that makes so much sense or, yeah, you know, um, why, aren't, why haven't we been doing that for years? So the way we've sort of seen it, and I guess it's sort of going a wee bit back in time, but if you think of, um, you know, way, way, way back, um, sort of talking about our kind of ancestors of, you know, we were wired to share. So we were living in these communities. Um, we would hunter and gather collectively. Everything that we was probably owned would ultimately be shared. Um, there was no fences. We we're kind of living in this sort of harmony of being able to share and collaborative collaboratively, it's a bit of a mouthful, collaboratively consume the things that we have. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, we put these fences up. So the walls went up um, and we kind of shifted from, I guess, those collaborative consumption communities to more of kind of a hyper-consumption society where we just, you know, it was less about the we and more about the me. So I think it's only actually been recently, and, and I guess you have to thank the the sort of share economy giants like your Ubers and your Airbnb who have, who have truly led the way and, and have kind of given a huge paradigm shift. And I guess the way people do view ownership um, and, and if you look at it now there's more ways to share than ever and I think a, a real prime example is even if you look at restaurants now it's very common when you go out for a bite to eat and I know Ollie and I in Christchurch you know a lot of the sort of main restaurants um, here you know the, the style of eating is very much shared plates um, and you could be going for a business lunch you'd be going for, for friends family it doesn't really matter the idea is that we share and and ultimately now you know the idea of being able to share items that are genuinely literally just either collecting dust or making their way to landfill it's one of those things that has made a lot of sense forever um, but I think now given the the huge um, emphasis on you know the climate challenge that we're faced with and I think more people now are kind of exposed to you know the, the pretty grim reality that's that's sort of looming and being able to kind of like you said a pretty simple and logical solution that's easy to use has become quite attractive um, what are the most common time. things that are being shared have are you, are you sort of you're starting to notice trends now and behaviors yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've joked quite a lot that, you know, we could become a, a platform that just facilitates trailer rentals. That's always, uh -huh. trailers are incredibly popular. Yeah, and that also I've got a trailer sense, and it's, right? you know, it's, big, it's out expensive. all the time. Sometimes it comes back with a new tyre. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, hey, I look forward <laughs> to seeing it on Muto after this. <laughs> um, but basically, you know, it, your trailers are a big one. I think for us, there's like sort of two key item categories. We've got the, the outdoor and sports space. So that's things like your bikes, paddle boards, kayaks, tents, all that sort of things, little Weber barbecues. Um, and then very much that DIY and gardens, anything from a water blaster. You've got trailers, lawnmowers, hedge trimmers. Um, you, yeah, that sort of stuff is really popular. But I guess we are also seeing some pretty funky stuff. I mean, there's um in well, I'm whereabouts in are you based, Vincent? Oh, you're in Auckland. Oh, this is actually in Hamilton. So not I don't know if they'll deliver it this far to you, but for fifty bucks a day, you can have a spa pool. Um, you can hire out a spa pool. They bring it round. They set it up. So I mean, if you're um you know looking to do a bit of a date night, or I don't know if you want to get some friends around, I don't know what you want to do with it. But um you know you can have a spa pool, which is kind of cool. Um, there's all sorts of stuff. So it's been pretty um yeah pretty incredible journey just seeing the the types of things people are willing to share with essentially it's strangers. A, it's it's a, quite a phenomenon, isn't it? This sharing economy has been a change in our thinking from owning to. Uh, what would you call it, um, subscription or, or sharing? Do you think that there is 
you, you're part of a bigger trend, don't you? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible in the share economy space how many players are. You know, you literally there is some form of share economy solution for almost anything now. And and you know, there's um, in terms of that sustainability space. I mean, you've got some incredible players even here in New Zealand. You've got the likes of sort of Mevo, which is like mm-hmm. kind of a form of yep, car sharing. Been on the show, um, uh, Eric. You've, yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, Eric's great, and I mean, he's served as um kind of an amazing, I guess, uh, mentor. Because I guess the, the beauty of being in this space is, that, is you are sort of kind of going against what was kind of once believed as common practice. Um, and so I think for us, it's it's pretty incredible to kind of all band together because we do all have this common goal of kind of changing the way we consume and changing our, our view on ownership. And I think, you know, for Eric's um, space, you know, the idea of potentially not ever owning a car again and using them as and when you need them is, is an awesome opportunity. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's a really exciting space to be in um, and, it, and it is growing and it is gaining a lot of traction. I mean, you would never... And sort of, you know, if you take, say, 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, jumping in a car with a stranger or staying in a stranger's yes. house just seemed ludicrous, right? But you know, now you've got people renting out spa pools. Um, so, you know, it, it's moving. It, uh, it kind of raises the interesting question of um, uh, impact, doesn't it? That uh, Is there a way to for, for either both of you to measure the impact that you're having? Um, you know, for part of, it seems to me that part of the purpose of both your businesses is to reduce the physical impact on waste and also the, the, the footprint of just how much stuff is created and then thrown out. H- how do both of you measure the impact you're having on that objective? Yeah, I'll get Ollie to, to jump into this one first. I'm assuming Ollie's one's probably um, far more further advanced than ours. We're still kind of building out a tool to really capture this in a, in a meaningful way. But Ollie, do you want to just jump yeah, sure. in? Yeah, um, sure. So, yours, in terms of our measurement of impact, there's a few different things that we're we're looking at on a day to day basis, and also like on a kind of a longer term, quarterly, annually basis. Um, the obvious one for us is um, waste. So every time we repro- remanufacture and return a product to a hospital, we know that that's one less product that needs to be imported and uh, therefore made somewhere else and brought to New Zealand. Uh, so that's pretty simple. We can, you know, it's a multi- multiplier on the the volume or uh, or uh, mass of the product waste reduction. The next one, um, which is also e- equally as simple, is the financial impact that that um, product being remanufactured and sent back at a lower cost has for the hospital that we're selling it to. So uh, that's just a, the difference in price between um, the remanufactured good, which is usually you know in, in the realm of 40 to 70% of the original product price, so a, a 60 to 30% saving, uh, mm. multiplied by the number of products that we sell back to the hospital remanufactured. Pretty straightforward. And, and you can still make a buck. And make that saving on a new product. Yeah, and and so we're. Um, I hesitate with the term social enterprise because it's kind of one of the most poorly defined things um, in the uh, <laughs> sort of entrepreneurial space, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, we we are a business for good. So you know, at, by us operating and us, you know, we're we're a business, so we generate a profit, but we generate. Um, good by doing that. So think along the lines of Tom's shoes um, t- type mm-hmm. business models. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, the, the point is you you can still make a saving as a, 
despite all of the processing, you know, the collecting, the processing, the cleaning and the delivering back is still cheaper to do that than to buy a new product. Yeah, so quite substantially so. Um, so depending on the, the hospital, we've, we've saved some hospitals um, north of, or, or uh, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of dollars quite literally um, on that very simple, straightforward calculation. And that's not even including their waste cost. Um, but those are kind of the most simple metrics that we can use. Um, we also have some other sort of like from our perspective, sustainability is not just about the environment. It's all also about the, um, the wider community and ability to change those things. So uh, we've got what I like to call a social employment practice where we're trying to find opportunities to give people with disadvantages um, an opportunity themselves and so that's a measurement of you know who have we managed to find that we can give a job and give um mm. uh, you know uh give them another a chance uh, if you like and so that's you know in terms of number of employees that we have in those spaces and and how they're how they're going in their, their personal professional development um just because it wasn't hard enough to be refurbishing hospital gear you also want to give yourself a social Impact as well. Well, yeah, depending on who you talk to, arguably the redu- reduction of waste is a social social good, but it's a little bit distended from the sort of common yeah. um, thing. The the real reason for it, Vincent, is um, when I was just starting out with MedSelf, we went on a tour with the University of Canterbury um, like student startup program or summer startup program through Kilmarnock Enterprises, which is a local business here in Christchurch that – uh, allows adults with intellectual disabilities the opportunity to work and and, um, and they for example they refurbish uh, or they clean Air New Zealand's headphones or um, components around and I went through that business and I thought look this is a fantastic initiative but also at MedSelf what we do with every product is the same for every product and so there's a lot of consistency and structure about the way we work and that gives the opportunity for us to employ people um, you know who, who fits who who need, needs some help sometimes. Mm, uh, good. So that that's another metric that that we have, and then I suppose there's some more peripheral ones, and that's that's around how can we in, encourage um, hospitals to engage in other sustainability-minded um, initiatives with respect to their packaging, for example, um, and and other right. things. And those ones are a little bit less tangible, but still certainly things that we we do report on um, when we. Mm when we report, I suppose. <laughs> and how do you report? Well, uh, what I mean by reporting is we've had funding from uh, a number of organisations. Um, we've been lucky enough to have funding from the Canterbury Joint Waste Committee, which is, uh, I think, Toby has as well with Mutu. And they and they have been, sure have. they're our first sort of supporter and they funded us for one of our first pieces of equipment. Um, but we obviously have to report back to the, that committee about, you know, what we've done with the funding and how, how that's made an impact. We've also been lucky enough to receive funding from Auckland Council, um, the, the Sustainable Initiatives Trust, which is Canterbury-based but now no longer mm-hmm. exists, and uh, the Waste Minimisation Fund, so that's the Ministry for the Environment Fund. So for all of those funds, we have to report, um, much like you might, to a board about what we're doing and how we're hitting our straps with respect to what they're asking of us. Um, so those are, those are some of the methods that we – that's kind of where we report, I suppose. And we also do report that um, on a like some of those more baseline metrics to our customers. So on a, on a, 
uh, quarterly basis at the moment, but moving to monthly, we are reporting the savings, the waste waste diversion, how each hospital and each location within that hospital is doing with respect to our programs, what they can do to improve, and how that's impacting you know the, the wider um, New Zealand, wider New Zealand. Mm, terrific. Well, so you're going to be you've, you've got data up the wazoo um, that should be able to demonstrate the viability of this project, and, and I'm assuming. Um, Toby, as well, that you you must be producing a, a ton of data about consumer behaviour. Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, phenomenal seeing you know the search intent and, and kind of what people are you know interested in, in buying on a daily basis. And I think for, it's actually very similar to Ollie. If you kind of look at it very black and white, um, and the idea of kind of the the impact that a platform like Motu can have and similar to MedSelves, you know, by borrowing an item or borrowing something that you need, you're ultimately not purchasing it, right? So it's reducing that level of consumption. It's ultimately a, a direct reduction in emissions from production through to manufacturing, delivery, the rest of it. So it's a very much like a simple black and white look on our kind of overall um, value in the platform. But we also too, we, we get really excited by, you know, not only the social element of connecting with, you know, people who are not only like-minded but in your community and, and kind of being able to share and collaborate kind of like we used to but also there's a really nice touch around financial inclusion so you know you've got people who you know didn't always have access or affordable access to durable goods um, and generally excluded for you know one of the biggest challenges we see in the sporting sector is around participation that's solely to do with equipment and, and the lack of access to the appropriate equipment so a platform like this you know lowers that barrier and and gets inclusion then i did mention you know the likes of airbnb and uber kind of paving the way but even to engage in those types of platforms you need a house right and you also need a car which is you know less than 10 years old which you know for a lot of people mm, that's, me, that's yeah. not achievable so with a platform like Mutu yeah, yeah me the same so I think being able to uh, engage with a platform like ours with you know there's no cost to sign up or anything like that there's that yeah. immediate opportunity to generate you know passive income on things you already own but I guess you talk about reporting and some of the stuff that um, Ollie's jumping into there, which definitely fascinates me as well, is, is being able to report back on actual engagement and being able to save hundreds of thousands of dollars for a hospital is you know, pretty incredible. I mean, we're not in, in that sort of space, but in terms of uh, reporting and being able to give users direct feedback on, on how they're performing in a platform. So basically, we're in the process right now of building a tool um, which essentially will educate the users of the impact of borrowing as opposed to buying. So to give you an example, um, you know, someone lists a lawnmower and it will give them a direct uh, saying by listing this lawnmower for say an estimated, uh, you'll save an estimated, you know, 2.5 tonnes of CO2 each year. And that the only way to actually um, get this data and to be able to like gamify the experience and to give people the points and badges and rewards and things like that is to, is to essentially complete detailed life cycle assessments for each individual item. Because um, if you take the lawnmower, uh, you know, was it imported from overseas? It came here on a diesel ship. Where were the individual parts made? Is it electric? Um, mm. So a heap of variables go into those life cycle assessments to get that data. But I mean, sure, yeah, Ollie's probably done plenty of those for the piece of uh, equipment. So yeah, incredibly time consuming. Um, and ultimately, yeah, that we are trying to build a, an AI driven tool that will enable that um, so working on that with Callahan at the moment which is really exciting which will ultimately give our users so when they borrow an item they'll be earning points they'll be getting badges I think in the sustainability space unfortunately um, people really do need to be rewarded and I think it works well like the gamifying the experience and and yeah giving people rewards and and being able to be proud of kind of your um, 
yeah, your participation. Oliver, you was mentioning efforts. before the impact that, uh, in a not kind of intangible sense of starting a hospital on, on a journey, are you finding the same, Toby, that it, uh, a little bit like, uh, you know, you might try an organic coffee, uh, a fair trade coffee that starts you sort of on a journey towards, well, what about your tea? What about sugar? In fact, what about the other things I'm eating? Are you finding that engaging with Mutu starts a, someone on a journey towards bigger questions? Yeah, I actually really love that you brought this up because I was trying to figure out a way to slip it into the conversation. But <laughs> so basically, um, what we've found really early on is, um, and we have a number of awesome use cases for this, but basically with a, a new user to Mutu, they'll, they'll jump on the app, they'll download it, and they generally will just be a bit of an explorer. So they'll do a bit of searching. They may not list anything. And that is initially the start of their journey. Like, oh, that was pretty exciting. There's quite a lot of stuff nearby and kind of park that idea until there's a, a need. And then they list something. So they'll chuck on their... Their, um, their bike or their uh, camera or something like that and they just wait and then you know after a couple of weeks they get that first transaction which is almost like a little dopamine hit and they go oh it's made $35 or $20 um, and then you see it becomes a bit of a game and this journey becomes quite exciting because you then rush around the house and think well if I made 25 bucks doing essentially nothing what else could I make money off here? And then you, you see people go from one item to 10 items to 20 items to, you know, now they're treating it like this own little micro business operating out of their garage. So I think for us, it's, you know, as a business, we're ultimately trying to um, educate people and excite yeah. people by that possibility. Um, and we, at this stage, of, you know, we've got sort of a maybe around 15 to 20 users who are actively treating it yeah. almost as like a rental business. Um, and then others are, are far more on the terms of a journey, probably a bit more at the start, right, with just that early engagement, trying to figure out what this is all about and, and building that <laughs> trust with our brand. So people are um, getting so yeah. into the, uh, I suppose, the, the business of it. And then are you finding, I don't, and it might be too hard for you to say, but are you finding that that starting conversations about the way that we behave as consumer society, questioning uh, our kind of consumer choices or our lifestyle choices? Yeah, because I think the more, but I think before platforms like Mutu and, and even before um, you know, an organisation like MedSelv, it was just common practice. Like there was no way to essentially deal with whether medical products correctly or, um, or you know, getting borrowing things um, from someone living two doors down that you never knew. So I think now that it is a thing, a big part mm -hmm. of it for us is education. And I think the more people that know about it. And the more people that do engage and, and get those positive experiences, we are noticing that they champion our brand for us. So we've got people all the time who sort of are, are sharing our, our stuff on social media and they're, they're inviting friends to the, the app and all sorts of stuff. And I think the more and more people that get kind of get in that mindset of having access over ownership or borrowing as opposed to buying, um, I think mm. we all benefit going forward. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Oliver, you um, have written quite a lot about planned obsolescence and uh, product stewardship. Can you expand on that? You know, are there, this, uh, yeah, what is product obsolescence in reality? Uh, okay, so I'll talk about planned obsolescence first. Now, I spoke earlier about what it means to make a device, like to label a device single use. There are some devices which are deliberately designed to be single use, like which is obviously um, not not the usual case, but there are some products that have had um, let's call them an inverted commas features added to them, which make them deliberately difficult to remanufacture or to clean. Um, you know, complicated geometry or whatever that gets um, by mm -hmm. by a burden won't won't be removed from easily or whatever. We've seen some interesting examples. One of them is a water soluble stitch on a textile product. Now. Uh, 
we then raised that with the hospital and the hospital, you know, that, 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 that feature was there for one reason and one reason only, which was to prevent the reuse of that product, which mm. uh, then meant a very interesting conversation between the hospital and the manufacturer or the distributor, which meant something along the lines of, what's this for? Get rid of it or we will look at getting rid of you. And to their credit, the company who import and distribute that product um, talked to the manufacturer and have changed that, which is a step in the right direction. But that's just a perfect example of, of what we call planned or forced obsolescence. Yes. Now, there are other products that we are looking at in the longer term. Um, for example, some types of catheters have chips that have been um, implanted into the catheter for the sole purpose of stopping it from being remanufactured. Um, they haven't got a functional purpose in terms of delivering a better patient outcome or increasing the speed of the procedure. They're just there to stop them from being reused, so they're a blocker. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. This is the sort of I mean, stuff. This is, that, all, is bad behaviour, and you would you you would you would say it borderline unethical behaviour. Well, there's there's yeah. I mean, it would be difficult to categorise it as ethical. Um, there is obviously sort of the, the, the manufacturers will come up with some a variety of reasons as to why it's a good thing, um, but fundamentally, what they're looking to do there is protect their bottom line at the expense of the environment. Um, and so we've we've had a lot of success by pointing out these um, subtle changes that are there for the specific reason. And hospitals, once they find out about them, particularly you know the clinical um, types or procurement surgeons, they don't take too kindly to it. But it, it is a real thing. It is a real shame. Um, it's it's somewhat similar to what you've we've seen in the past with like the likes of um, iPhones and the right to repair legislation um, or, or uh, litigation mm. that's currently happening over and outside of New Zealand. Um, very very sort of similar stuff. So that's what forced obsolescence is. Now, for, from from our perspective and in the medical sector. Now, in the uh, product stewardship is effectively. Um, the producer of a product taking responsibility for, for that product's life cycle. So Toby talked briefly about the life cycle assessment and that's you know looking at the impact that a product or service has on the environment generally, um, but also could be financial. That's usually called total cost of ownership. But a life cycle assessment from, from when you get that product as a raw material out of the ground, say if you're mining it, and then you use it all the way through to the end of that product's useful life and then what you do mm. with it. Now, product stewardship means that as the manufacturer or the producer of that product, you're taking responsibility for all of those steps and you're providing a way for that product to re-enter back into um, you know, useful materials. So think along the lines of um, there's a famous book called Cradle to Cradle about um, the circular economy and product, yeah. product stewardship is all about that sort of mentality and the ability for a producer to have, have something um, in place that allows for that product to be reused or broken down into, uh, I think they're called technical nutrients, if you like, um, is the term used in that book, where they can then be used in a subsequent product and, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, interesting. And how many organisations or, or manufacturers now are taking that cradle to cradle point of view? Well, it's interesting to see. I think um, there are different ways to do the to have the um, have a bite of the cradle to cradle cherry, if you like. Uh, in, in some cases, that involves turning the product into something that will disintegrate uh, as a bio a, a bio product. And often, you see people yes. adding the word bio in front of what a normal um, products um, so bioplastic for example uh, and that'll that'll you know they'll disintegrate and then they can return to earth and then eventually you know 
after a gazillion years, they might turn into a, a plastic again. Um, but it, it, everything disintegrates eventually, doesn't it? Yeah, it, you know, everything <laughs> in enough millennia. <laughs> everything's biodegradable. Just depends on what your time scale is, right? Um, yeah. So then, then you've got products that are designed so that. Um, you know, if a component fails in the in the future, then you can replace that component. So, Consumer New Zealand has some really interesting insight into um, right to repair on things like washing machines, um, where the washing machines have been designed in a way where you can actually refit parts after they've um, if they failed, and that's a product stewardship thing. And having the um, that's a sort of environmental responsibility thing. Um, it's certainly something that we're seeing. I, I think I've seen a bit more in like the premium space products where. Um, mm. That's what the customer wants. And then some of the best product stewardship schemes just don't, you know, New Zealand's not quite big enough. So one of the ones that I have, um, I think is one of the coolest ones internationally, I think it was in Italy, um, is what Coca-Cola do with their um, glass bottles. So uh, most people look at Coca-Cola and see plastic bottles being sold around New Zealand. And that's, you know, generally the truth. But in Italy, their glass bottles, which are sold at restaurants, the av- I think the, I may be wrong because it's a while since I watched the video, but um, I think the average number of uses one of those glass bottles will get, you know, made, bottled, um, you know, filled with Coke and sent to the restaurant and then back to the bottling plant, cleaned and back to the restaurant, is about 17 for a glass bottle, Ooh. which, uh-huh. you know, that we've got some pretty high reuse rates, but we're still a few, you know, a few away from that. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, as far as I'm aware, the gold standard in terms of um, product stewardship. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. And then ultimately, of course, glass is you know it's quite a biodegradable product as well. Gets turned back into sand uh, ultimately. Uh, I want to um, sort of touch on the business aspect in the in the last few minutes that remain, um, because um, you know so many. I suppose the narrative around sustainability has has for a long time been around cost and compliance and I think that that's probably been a huge driver in the you know the slowing down of new business models new innovations to emerge as this sort of the cost component of shifting from a high emissions disposable extraction economy to to a greener economy but uh, I wonder if you guys are both examples of new markets emerging out of you know, kind of circularity thinking. I'm thinking, Toby, particularly for you, um, uh, about the, you know, this five years ago, it was probably, you know, maybe not five years ago, but it's kind of inconceivable that this would actually be a business, right? Yeah, 100%. I think to kind of, to follow on from that, I guess we, for so long, you mentioned the idea of sort of sustainability or being carbon uh, conscious, you know, being a cost or it was never, ever a priority. It was Mm. always very much like a nice to have, especially in, not necessarily at a consumer level, even at like in big business level. And I think, I guess we are seeing that fundamental shift and I guess everyone plays an important role. And I think one of the best use cases I've seen, and ultimately New Zealand's a bit of a slow adopter in this space, but we'll definitely get there, is the idea around voluntary emission reductions certifications. And I mean, so basically in short, you know, you've got um, you know places that provide certification on, on the good that a business are doing to give them a sort of a direct return on sustainability. So, I mean, MedSelf will be a prime candidate, candidate for something like this. And ultimately the, the hospitals engaging with, 
you know, their service offering would be able to earn the if, if MedSalve was certified by someone, they would be able to earn credits for engaging with this platform based mm. on the impact of reducing waste mm. that they are or reusing. And ultimately, those credits can be cha- exchanged for cash. And I guess like a, a real-world example of that is Tesla. You know, last year made half a billion dollars by selling these credits to the likes of uh, Chrysler and Ford and the rest of them. You know, so because they're, gener- you know, they're running at um, such a carbon-efficient business, and, and these ones are still guzzling through petrol and diesel and the rest of it, you know, ultimately having to buy these credits to try and keep mm. up in the sustainability race. So there's huge opportunity in this space. And, and I think the shift from looking at it as kind of like a, a burden or just an extra cost or a, a nice to have if, if we're financially viable, it is changing. Um, and yeah, there's uh, massive opportunity. Uh, another podcast I've been um, working with Pure Advantage and Tane's Tree Trust on is the idea of turning native forests into um, sort of e- economic generators of wealth for landowners. And the, the interesting thing with that is that, you know, for so long, native forest has been seen as a, something to preserve and conserve. So it's so it's it's a cost, you know, we need to put that portion aside and do nothing with it. But there's, there's a real shift in thinking around thinking of native forests for, for, for timber, for instance, you know, makes terrific timber, but also other values for tourism, for... Um, um, uh, cleaning waterways uh, for carbon sequestration, and you, it, it's a sort of a, a shift in thinking that perhaps is necessary, right, um, Oliver? We, we to, to to get even if you are a social enterprise, you still have to be able to wash your face and make a profit so that you can do it again next year. Yeah, I mean, the social enterprise model often, uh, as people interpret it, is. And on on your right hand, you've got a profit-making entity. And on your left hand, you've got the profits being handed over to a charity. Now, we're in a unique position there where we don't have to do that by because by doing by operating our business, we're actually creating a positive impact through our waste reduction, cost reduction, and therefore increasing the spend, the, you know, how far the health dollar goes. And also through our employment and, um, you know, having innovation here in New Zealand and a whole bunch of other kind of metrics um i personally believe that for-profit businesses that have a you know a, a fundamentally hardwired to do good do a lot better than not-for-profit businesses and um and that's where kind of where we're at i think if we were set up as a not-for-profit there would be a very different lens applied to how we operate um and the yes. efficiency and quality with which we're able to do our you know conduct our remanufacturing programs and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, the, the other side of it, the coin is, you know, if you're a business, someone thinks that you're doing good because otherwise, you, you know, you wouldn't be making any money because no one would be buying your product. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where, where, that's my personal view and that's kind of hard baked into to Medso as you can probably tell. Uh, I think the the danger is that with that model of social enterprise where you've got one entity doing one thing and then donating the profits to another, um, you can have what that one entity does at odds to a degree with um, broader sustainability in some cases. Um, And so, yeah, that seems like a complicated way to do it and it's not necessarily the way we want to do it. Mutu is exactly the same. You know, by operating Mutu, um, Toby and his team are – enabling people to reduce the amount of product that has to be imported into New Zealand and used but they don't have to be putting money into a, a charity that to do to do waste um, reduction if you like um, yeah, they're yeah, fundamentally doing yeah. it so that's where I think the opportunity lies 
And I think that people are willing to pay for um, something that is more sustainable and, and you know, hits all of those key areas for them as a consumer mm. and also as a business and more so as, as big business as they have um, obligations. Yeah. So that's kind of my view. Yeah, no, 100% agree because I think you know, so for so long we've been used to a business model that says, well, I'm going to be a dirty polluter, but look at this thing that I've just sponsored, the music awards or whatever. And so there's a there was a kind of a trade-off of um, – and in, in the PR game, you know, so much of it was about um, masking over the bad behaviour with a little bit of um, philanthropy. Yes, that's right. And yeah. and I think now what, what you guys are committed to and what's emerging for me is this, the commitment to it. actually know the business itself, the very act of being in business needs to be a net contributor to a better world, a better environment, a better social outcome. And we might make a buck as well. How cool would that be? Mm. Yeah, I think for us, I mean, this, this is totally. like when we look at every decision, whether that be a day-to-day operational decision or a big strategic one, we're always looking with sustainability as, as our yardstick. Um, so we're making that decision against, is this going to be you know long-term sustainable for, for our purpose as a company and factoring that in? And often I think people are... Um, they like to tack that on after they've made the decision and justify what they're doing um, through the lens yes. of PR perhaps or, you know, how can we stick a green a green flavour to this? I think mm. that's the wrong way to make that decision and, and, you know, fundamentally doesn't really help anyone out. Mm. Interesting. Just to complement what Ollie was saying kind of just even slightly previously is with – businesses like ourselves or even just kind of any new business entering the fold is you know we fundamentally have sustainability founded into our core and and every decision from day one can have that sustainability um, vision and values tied into decision making whereas you know some of these larger you know entities who are admittedly being forced to change quite dramatically with the climate change commission report and etc you know they're obviously having to now build in sustainability around some pretty outdated and unsustainable practices so we have a real opportunity now and and so does any new business being built to to create a new way to do business Uh, big small medium you name it like there's the opportunity now being able to build in this way of thinking from the get-go so much easier to do it as a new business uh so well done you guys on on both on starting and there's something about christchurch is there you're both from christchurch do you did you know each other before you um came on this podcast um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't even think about how we, we did. Actually, I think the first time I met Ollie was he mentioned um, getting some support from the Canterbury Waste Joint Committee. I'm pretty sure that's where we first met, wasn't it, mate? We both sitting in there queuing up, holding our fingers and toes <laughs> to try and get some funding and I think we both sort of met there and it's sort of just been on the same sort of journey ever since. Yeah, I think, well, it's been, yeah, it's, it's been cool to see Toby's thing. I think you made the comment that Toby's market's possibly easier to attack than, than Medsales. I, I would say possibly not because it's such a, um, for many people, it's a paradigm shift, but it's been so cool to see in the last, what is it, six months that, that you know, pick up and get the support that it needs from both um, investment community but also the customer community. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's been super. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Hey, well, look, um, congratulations, both of you. Um, and uh, this, uh, this has been th- three men talking, but I think your teams are more diverse and um, and interesting than just th- three blokes. So, um, where can we find out more about both businesses? Give us a little sales pitch. 
I'll jump in there first. So basically with Mutu, we're just at www.mutu.co.nz and there's all the information you need about our our business and what we do on there. And if you ultimately want to download the app and list some of the items you've got sitting around the garage collecting dust or save a bit of money borrowing, the app is available on both the app stores, Apple and Google, um, and then on all the social channels. You'll find a very nice trailer in Mount Albert very soon. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, how about you, Ollie? Uh, yeah. How do we how do we find Medtelv? How do you spell it? Uh, yeah, so it's 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 just a combination of the word medical and salvage, but it's med s a l v, so m e d s a l v. Um, now the we've got a website. It's just medtelv.com, and you can um, get in touch with us there. We've got a couple of contact forms there. Um, if you happen to be uh, an employee of a hospital or own a hospital or run a hospital. Do get in touch. If you're in a surgical hospital, we'd be happy to help you out with your waste reduction goals and um, breathe some sustainability into what you're doing. Good promo. <laughs> don't let them say that we don't help businesses here on This Climate Business. So th- thanks, guys. <laughs> really appreciate your time and uh, wish you all the best. Let's stay in touch. Awesome. Thanks, Vincent. Awesome. Thanks, Vincent. Uh, thanks for having us on. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.